the person who shared Jesus with me first was my great-grandfather, who from the early age of four or five would recite to me John 3.16 like it was written just for me. I was 30 years old and I was stationed on the demilitarized zone in Korea and the person who shared Jesus with me was Ramon Gomez, another soldier. Pastor John Smith from Rock Island, Washington came knocking at my door and asked me if I would die tomorrow and go to heaven. He's the first person who presented the gospel to me. I know Jesus Christ because Howard, the Sunday school bus driver, faithfully came each week to my neighborhood. The person that shared Jesus with me was my mom when I was three years old. The person who shared Jesus with me was a Sunday school teacher when I was five years old in Shelton, Washington. The way I came to Christ was from an invitational hymn at the end of a sermon, where he leads me off follow. The person who shared Jesus with me was my dad. What brought me to Jesus was Pastor Brad and the Trinity. I guess it's never too late for someone. How about that? That's awesome to see. That's really, really awesome to see. Well, you guys made that introductory video by sharing with us who shared Jesus with you. And here's what we're doing all month during this series called Overflow. We're asking you if you'll make a trip to the foyer sometime after a worship service. So today would be a great day. Head out there into this far corner and uh, there's someone there who will film you. Just share with us who shared Jesus with you. It's like one sentence, maybe two if you're really brave. And uh, then we'll get to use that to encourage the rest of us. It's a way of, of giving God honor, and it's also a way of giving the person who shared with us honor as well. So what a great opportunity. I want to encourage you to take advantage of that and just head up there in the corner after uh, this service is over and share with us who shared Jesus with you. We're talking about that because we're in a series called Overflow. It's uh, from a section of 2 Corinthians, so you can go ahead and open your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but uh, it's this conversation we're having uh, in 2 Corinthians called Overflow is about the unique way that Jesus' followers serve the world. We are called on to serve the world. We've been given a ministry, Paul tells us, in this section that we're studying. And this ministry is our unique way of serving the world, and it's a way of serving the world that only we can do. Other organizations can do great things, but there's something that only we can do. There's a way of serving the world that only Jesus' followers can serve. And that's what Overflow is about. And that, that unique way of serving the world revolves around the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And as we do this, as we share this good news of Jesus with the world, something wonderful happens. And we learned about it last week, Second Corinthians 4. Something wonderful happens. All this is for your benefit, this sharing, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. As we serve the world in the one way that only we can do, grace, thanksgiving, and God's glory all overflow. And I love the way that that ties up with the vision that we've been praying for our valley from the book of Habakkuk, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would fill this valley like the waters cover the sea. That will happen as we take this unique way of serving the world that only we can do. And we're, we faithfully share it 
with others. And this morning what we want to do is we want to, we want to grow in that a little bit. We want to stretch ourselves and equip ourselves uh, in, in a way that will help us better carry this out. So in our passage, we're studying this kind of a medium-sized section of Scripture where Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about what talks about ministry. He talks about this unique way of serving the world. And there's a section of several chapters where Paul is describing his ministry. And that's the section of Scripture that we're looking at these four Sundays in Overflow. And uh, as we do that, we know that one reason Paul shares his methods and his experiences with us is because they're meant to serve as a model for us. So even though it's Paul's ministry, it's meant to exemplify ministry for you and for me and for uh, the uh, Jesus' church. So we're going to read this main text in 2 Corinthians. And uh, as we do, we're going to read seven verses. That'll be kind of the, the jump-off point for us this morning. Then we're going to read some other things as well that come out of these several chapters in 2 Corinthians. But right in the middle of it all is chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. All right, in this section of Scripture, there's a lot of, there's a lot of details, a lot of different things that Paul's... He's talking about just a couple things, but he kind of, you know, lots of details. And you kind of have to read a couple times, understand what's going on. But uh, one thing that's very clear is, is a big idea that emerges from what he says at the beginning and the end of this passage. Two times he uses the phrase, we have. We have. We've been in... It's not so much possessed, but we've been entrusted with something. And in verse 1, he calls it this ministry. We learned last week that ministry is a word that means to serve. So Paul says, we have this way of serving the world as Jesus' followers. We have this ministry. And then at the end, verse 7, he repeats that phrase, we have, only this time he calls it a treasure. We have this ministry, this unique way of serving the world, and it is a treasure, Paul says. So, big idea that emerges from this passage is that our way of serving the world, our unique way of serving the world, is by sharing a treasure. We want to understand what this treasure is. And it, if you read the context, if you read the passage that we read, it, it's embedded in those first six verses, this treasure, the identity of this treasure that we have. It's the treasure of the good news of Jesus. You see that in verse 4 where Paul says, uh, the light of the knowledge, or the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the light of the gospel. In verse 6, 
the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This knowledge of who Jesus is and, and how he represents God. And then, and then in verse 5, we do not preach ourselves. We're not communicating ourselves. We're communicating Jesus. You, you get the sense pretty clearly that what Paul is talking about is the gospel. That that's what this treasure is. And a couple of years ago, we came up with a a definition of the gospel that comes out of the book of Galatians that gives us a pretty good summary of this good news that Paul's talking about. And, and it's this. Jesus gave himself for our sins and rose again from the dead to rescue us from sin and death. And we can experience that rescue through simple faith in him. That's the gospel in, in, uh, in its, its condensed form. Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself to rescue us from sin and death. And that we can experience that rescue by simple faith in him. That's the treasure that Paul is talking about. And Paul says this idea, this idea right here, the gospel, it is a treasure. We use this word. The Greek word that Paul used for treasure, it's a word that we still use today. It's the Greek word thesaron. And we get our word thesaurus. From it. So, what's a thesaurus? A thesaurus is a treasure trove of words, right? It's a treasure trove of nouns and adjectives and and uh, synonyms, and uh, it's a vast supply. That's what this word means. This thesaron is a treasure trove. It's a vast supply of wealth, a valuable collection of priceless treasure. It's Scrooge McDuck sitting on piles of gold coins. That's Thessaron. And Paul says, that's the gospel. The gospel is a treasure, a priceless treasure of incalculable value. This good news that Jesus gave himself for our sins and rose again to rescue us from sin and death. And we can experience that rescue through simple faith in him. And this is a treasure. And what's true of this treasure is that it's true of any treasure. Uh, Everyone who has it is enriched, and people who don't have it are impoverished. Those who have it are rich, those who don't have it are poor. It's like a treasure in that way. It's unlike most treasures in this way, that you can share as much of it as you want and not diminish any of how much you have. So it's a treasure, this gospel, this truth, and we have it. We have been entrusted with it. Those who possess, those who are rich, are under orders to share it with those who are poor. Those who have it have been entrusted with the responsibility of sharing it with those who don't. Now, I want you to hold that thought for a minute. We're going to take what, you, what might feel like a bit of a detour, and, and it's going to last almost to the end of the message before we get back on. Again, all right? But I want you to hold this thought. We're going to take this parallel path. The thought is this. We have been entrusted with a treasure, a priceless treasure, the good news of Jesus, that he, Jesus gave himself for our sins. And we can experience his rescue from sin and death by simple faith in him. So hold that thought. And uh, I want us to think about some other things that we see in this, in this passage. When Paul wrote these words, When Paul wrote this, uh, this news about Jesus, it wasn't just good news. It was also, at the same time, very new 
news. It was new news. It was in the days of the early church. It was just a few decades after Jesus' ministry. Just a few decades after Jesus had resurrected and ascended into heaven. Only a few decades old. And it was replacing something that was much older. Centuries old. A millennium old. Actually, about 1,500 years old. That's what this good news was replacing. A system that was about 1,500 years old. I'm talking about the Old Testament law. What what, uh, you might refer to as the law of Moses or the Old Covenant. And uh, different, all these terms, Old Testament, Old Covenant, Mosaic Law, they're all different terms to describe the same thing, that thing that we have in our Old Testaments, different, uh, this system, religious system that God had designed as a way of relating to Him. So the Old, you know, it's in our Old Testament, we call it Old Testament, which is, Testament is just a word, an, a kind of an archaic word for covenant in this case. So your Old Testament... And your New Testament, it's an old covenant and a new covenant. An old deal and a new deal between God and people. And the old covenant, in the Old Testament, God had set up a way by which anyone who wanted to have a relationship with Him could do it. As long as you became part of the nation of Israel, were circumcised, and started keeping the over 600 laws found in the Old Testament. And anyone who wanted to join the nation of Israel, become circumcised, and start keeping these Old Testament laws, could, uh, could, that's, that's the basis on which God granted people a relationship with Him. And these laws, these over 600 laws, they're, they're uh, moral laws of, of mor- having to do with moral conduct. There were civil laws that had to do with how to conduct yourself in society. There were uh, temple laws. Temple laws, uh, religious laws that regulated worship and the temple system. And uh, if you wanted to join the nation of Israel, become circumcised, and, and keep all these laws, that was the basis on which you could have a relationship with God under the Old Deal, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And these laws, these 600 laws, started with Moses. Right? So sometimes it's called the Mosaic Law. And you can read about it in the book of Exodus. You can read about these, you can read these laws themselves in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, but here's the problem. And God knew this would happen. The problem is that this law that was, that God wrote on stone tablets for Moses, the law that was written on stone tablets created people with hearts of stone. That's what happened. Now, God knew that would ha- God knew that would happen, but it did. Uh, it created people with stone hearts because relating to God on the basis of performance and trying to keep laws and be good enough for God, it makes for great religion if that's what you're into. But it doesn't make for a great relationship with God, and it doesn't make for great people. Instead, it makes for people with stone hearts because it creates pressure and failure and hypocrisy. Just by its very nature, relating to God on the basis of performance creates pressure and failure and hypocrisy. Now, that's what Paul is getting at in the section, uh, the couple of paragraphs right before chapter 4. So I'd like for us to read 
beginning in uh, chapter 3. We're going to start right in the middle of chapter 3. And you might have a heading somewhere in chapter 3 that talks about the glory of the new covenant or something like that. Basically what Paul's doing in this section of Scripture, right before we get to chapter 4, he's comparing this old deal and the new deal. And the beginning in verse 6, he talks about this old covenant. And he describes it and he says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, that's the law, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death... Remember, he's contrasting old and new. If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory which lasts? Paul's comparing this old way of relating with God with this new news, which is good news. And basically what he says about the old covenant, this system that God himself had designed, he used several, several words here to describe it. First of all, he says, it kills. The letter kills. It brings death. It condemns. And it's fading. It, it kills, brings death, condemns, and is fading away. And then we'll read in a few minutes that, that it veils us. It actually cuts us off from God. Now, when you think about this for a minute, this is the pathway that God himself created. This is the pathway of relating to him that God himself founded a people on. This is a religious system that came directly from God, but it kills. It condemns. It veils us off from the truth. All it does is give us stony hearts because it creates pressure and failure and hypocrisy. And think about this. If this is the pathway that God himself created, think about all those religions and belief systems that people came up with. Think of how destructive and unproductive they are. I mean, if this was a beauty contest... The gospel wins, hands down. Like the gospel is the winner of the beauty contest. And if the gospel is the winner, then the old covenant, the Mosaic law, is the runner-up. And she's old. She's the runner-up. She's the next best thing. And she's old. And, and compared to the gospel, she's not very pretty at all. And she's the runner-up. If she's the runner-up, think of how ugly all the other contestants are. Because every single other approach to God is made by men and, and is based on performance and fails miserably. It might make for a great religion, but it doesn't make for a great relationship with God. And it doesn't make for great people. Because it produces failure and pressure and hypocrisy. Every other approach 
to God or the gods or whatever, uh, whatever uh, you replace God with. Whatever other approach is a works-based, performance-based way of approaching life. So we live in a valley where 56% of our neighbors, 56% of the people in our valley claim no religious affiliation whatever. Now, that's about 20 points higher than the rest of the country, right here in the valley. 56%, no religious affiliation whatsoever. But the religion that we do have in the Walla Walla Valley, outside of that 56%, put them over here for a minute, then you've got the, the rest who are, have some kind of religion. The predominant religion or religions, faith-based approaches to God in the valley are very works-based religions. Of what's left, people who say, yes, I do identify with a a religious approach, they are very works-based approaches based on performance. That's really the primary religion in our valley is a religion of works. Uh, One example is our our Mormon friends and neighbors. Now, uh, Latter-day Saints are awesome people, friendly and kind and gracious and winsome. And they're great, they're great neighbors and they're great citizens. But if you have Mormon friends, you can pretty much know that your Mormon friends are living under the pressure of performance. Because Mormonism is a very man-made religious system. It reeks of a guy thought it up, you know. Uh, you learn about Mormonism, you're like, a guy thought it up. Not just a person, either. A guy thought it up. And uh, it, it, it clearly is a religion of being good enough. And every Mormon we know is living under the pressure of performing. And the better they are as Mormons, the more pressure they live under. They believe that Uh, They are saved by grace plus something called gospel obedience. That's what they call it, gospel obedience. So you're not saved by grace alone. They believe that what we teach at Trinity, that you're just saved by looking to Jesus as a forgiver of your sins and a leader of your life, faith alone. They believe that that is heresy. And that instead, you're saved by grace plus gospel obedience. And gospel obedience... They define as, uh, uh, I don't have the scripture for you, I've got it here in my notes, but it's a scripture from the Book of Mormon, and it says this, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. I've read what their own prophets and teachers say about that phrase, after all we can do, and you know what it means? It means, after all we can do. And that kills. Because how much can you do? How much can you do? And when have you done enough? And what if you fail? Do you get another chance? I mean, it's tremendous pressure after all we can do. Mormonism is a, is a way of relating to God on the basis of works. The next two most prominent faiths in our valley are Catholicism and Adventism. And they have a lot more in common with us. 
It's a lot easier to find Jesus in the Adventist church and the Catholic church than, honestly, than it is uh, in the Mormon faith. But Catholics and Adventists also, it's very works-based. And the better Catholic you are and the better Adventist you are, meaning the truer you are to your historic faiths, the more works and being good enough is built into them. And so even though we know we have friends, and I have friends who are genuine believers in both of these faiths, uh, there's a lot of works that is mixed up into uh, these ways of relating to God. You've got to be good enough. You've got to have faith, and you've got to have more than faith. You've got to add works to it. And here's the problem. If you've got to add something to faith, then how much do you have to add? How good is good enough? So, that's the pro- those are the prominent faith-based way- ways of approaching the world in our valley. But you still have this 56% over here that are like claim no religious affiliation, whatever. If you sat down with one of these 56% and said, I don't identify with any religion... If you were to ask them, uh, if you were to just sit down and have a cup of coffee with one of those folks and ask them, uh, well, what if, what if you're wrong? And what if there actually is a God? And what if there actually is life after death? And what if you actually do experience eternal life or eternal death in heaven or hell? What if that's actually true? You know what they will probably say to you? They've said it to me before. They will probably say, if it is true, then I hope I've lived a good enough life that God will understand and be okay because I'm a pretty good person. See, even the people who have no religious affiliation ultimately rely on a religion of works. How good is good enough? How many good works do I have to do to be saved? How many good works do I have to do to stay saved? How good do I have to be? How many slipsies do I get before I don't get any more chances? God doesn't save on the basis of good works. God saves on the basis of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's it. Now, I hope that you... Understand, I'm not picking on other denominations. I'm not trying to pick on other denominations. What I'm trying to do is help us see that we have a treasure. We have a treasure that not everybody has. The treasure of salvation by grace through faith. I want us to see that the difference between a man-made religion of approaching God on the basis of works the difference between that and the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves and works don't. What a religion of performance does is it kills. It condemns. People who believe they have to be good enough for God live under uncertainty and fear and pressure and failure and ultimately hypocrisy. And most of our friends in this valley who don't know Jesus, this describes them. They are, they are either, we are living in a valley with people who have either given up or are trying to be good enough. For those friends, neighbors, family members who, aren't, who don't know Jesus, they are most likely either they've given up on the whole thing, or they're trying to be good enough. 
Neither one of those creates hope. And they don't have to live like that. Because the gospel is a treasure. And I want us to read a little bit more about this treasure. We read the first, we read part of chapter 3 where Paul is talking about how the old covenant falls short. Look what he says about the new covenant beginning in verse 12. Chapter 3 verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. This veil is describing In the Old Testament uh, religious system, the temple, there was a veil between uh, the priest and and where the presence of God was represented. And that veil was a a barrier to access. That when Jesus dies, the Gospels tell us, Jesus, his death rent that veil, tore that veil, and and allowed for access. And and if if the runner-up, if access to God with the runner-up veils us from God, think of how far we are from God with every other man-made religious approach. But Verse 16, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Gospel removes the veil between us and God. And look at the difference between killing and condemning and fading away and what we read here in these verses where we read that the gospel gives us freedom and hope and transforms us into God's likeness. It doesn't give us stony hearts. It's not pressure or frustration, but it's freedom and hope and transformation. And that's the good news. And we have this treasure. We have it right here in this room. Right here in your own uh, relationship with God and your own story of your own transformation, you have this treasure. And my point in taking this detour through the old covenant and religious-based performance is to remind us we have a treasure trove of grace and forgiveness and hope and acceptance and eternal life and reconciliation, not pressure and failure, not being good enough, But thanks to what Jesus has done, the promise of eternal life just by turning to Jesus and trusting Him as a forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives. And we have this treasure. Those of us who have it are enriched. Those of us who don't are impoverished. Most of our valley does not have this treasure. And Paul says it's our job to get this treasure out. I want to read one more scripture. Chapter 5, familiar passage. Chapter 5, towards the end. Where, uh, beginning in uh, halfway through verse 18, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave it to us, so now we have it, that ministry. And uh, the, that min- the ministry of reconciliation is this, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. That's the gospel. And he has committed to us 
the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We have this treasure and it is our responsibility, our great privilege to share this treasure with those who don't have it. And we need to share it. Our vision at Trinity is that everyone at Trinity knows how to share this treasure. Now, one way you can share this treasure is when you invite someone. You know, we, as a church, we set aside different Sundays uh, for the specific purpose of inviting our friends who don't know Jesus and having an opportunity for them to receive, the, just to hear the clear presentation of the gospel in a way that's clear and and hopefully helpful. And that's one way that we share the gospel with our friends. But we don't want to just, you don't, you don't need Pastor Brad to be able to share the gospel with you. You need to be equipped. We all want, we want everyone to be equipped with the ability to share their story. You don't have to be a theologian. And I know, I know that uh, it's scary and, and there's probably not a person here this morning who isn't intimidated by the thought of sharing this with someone else. I know it's a challenging thing, but Paul says, listen, we've got hope and because we have hope, we can be bold in sharing. So, we want everyone at Trinity to be able to share the gospel on your own, this good news, not just have to bring someone to a pastor, you know. So all you need to be able to do that are a couple of tools. And one of those tools is the ability to share God's story. So one tool that we want everyone at Trinity to be equipped with is God's story. Be able to tell God's story. And you have an insert in your worship folder this morning that uh, describes God's story. You have, go ahead and take this out, and and you'll have a chance to take a look at it later, but uh, basically on this handout, there are just three different ways to tell God's story, three different choices that that you can pick from. There are many more, but these are three that we like to encourage people at Trinity because they're simple, and they're memorable, and they're portable, and you can take it and share, and we like, we put it on this piece of paper just to show you, you can... You know, it's, it's simple. You can draw it out. You can diagram it if you need to. And there are three different choices that you have for picking a way of sharing God's story that you're comfortable with. Our growth groups are working on practicing one of these ways of sharing God's story with each other. Uh, there are three of them. One of them is called Do Versus Done. That's the one in the middle. I like it because it's totally collapsible or expandable. Uh, do Versus Done is as simple as one sentence. It's as simple as one sentence. In one sentence, you can share the gospel. Are you ready for it? Are you ready? One sentence. Most people think a relationship with, about, with God is about what you have to do. But actually, it's about what Jesus has already done. Boom. Mic drop. You just shared the gospel. <laughs> simple, right? There you go. Do versus done. There's another one, the one at the bottom, the third one's called the morality ladder. And it basically, you can read it there and, and understand how it works. It basically is a ladder of performance that we've been talking about. And you ask someone to say, well, where do you think Billy Graham and Mother Teresa would be on this ladder? Well, they're up here. Uh, serial killer's down at the bottom. Where are you? Somewhere above a serial killer. Somewhere below Mother Teresa. Well, if Mother Teresa needs the gospel and you're down here, what do you think about that? What does that make you think? And you get a conversation, right, going about the gospel. And the other one, the one that I like, when I have time and the opportunity to sit down with someone is the, is the, the bridge, the one-verse bridge. That's the very first one where you share the gospel from Romans 6.23. You can find some great examples of the bridge being used on YouTube. Just Google 
or YouTube, you know, search on YouTube for uh, the bridge, and uh, you'll see several different uh, people using a diagram and explaining, and you can equip yourself to be able to share God's story. We all need to be able to share God's story because we have a treasure. We have a treasure that not everyone in this valley has because our valley is filled, up, filled with people who have given up or are trying to be good enough. And we have a treasure that we can share with them that, that Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done And all they need to do is simply turn to Jesus as the one God sent and put their confidence in him as a forgiver of their sins and the leader of their lives. You could tell that story. You can tell that story. You've got what you need to equip you to do that. What we want to be is a church that is on the ready to share the good news of Jesus because it's a treasure we want to share with others. Now, this morning, you may, uh, so for all of us, this is equipping and hopefully something you'll take home and become familiar with, but there may be someone here who's like, for the first time, I really understand the gospel, and I really understand the difference between it and how I've been operating. And I see that it really is just what Jesus did and, and faith in him, and it's not about being good enough. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to, to let today be the day that you turn to Jesus. And uh, all you need to do is simply tell God, You believe Jesus is who he is and did what he said, and you want the benefits that come to to, uh, people who put their faith in Jesus. And that will mark the beginning of your new relationship with God. And if you do that this morning, we want to hear from you. We want to be able to help you take the next step after that because God has good purposes for you that he wants to carry out. We want to help you do that. So let's take a minute, and uh, I I want to pray for all of us. Father, I want to pray this morning thanking you for the good news. And asking that uh, you would help us as a faith family to be uh, eager to share this treasure. Help us to be able to see our friends and our neighbors like you see them. People who have given up. People who are trying to be good enough. But people you sent Jesus to die for. People you want to have life. Give us eyes to see. And then give us the boldness that comes from your spirit to share. And help us to be ready to tell your story. And then I pray for anyone here this morning who has not really made that life decision. My prayer, God, is that you will show them that that, uh, you love them, you sent Jesus for them, you want them to have eternal life, and if if they would just turn to you, turn to the one you sent, that you'd be, uh, you'll keep your promise, and you'll adopt them into your family and give them uh, the promise of eternal life. We pray all these things through the name of the one you sent, Jesus. Amen.